Do take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 21. We're coming to the end of this gospel of John. There are some unresolved issues that we need to look at, and we're going to look at those this evening. It's a bit like life, really, that often we find ourselves at a point in life where, as with the passage of time, relationships have broken down and Uh, there's been no opportunity to resolve those relationships, and certainly this is true uh, in the story of Simon Peter, which emerges here. Quite common, you know, for Christian people to feel regularly like failures. It's also very common, I think, in Christian circles for people like me, who have my job, to delight in making people feel like failures. There are some kinds of preachers who have a kind of knack of doing that. I remember, I remember a friend of mine who many, 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 many years ago was doing a series of sermons. He was quite excited about the series of sermons, and he'd come up with great titles for his three talks. The titles were these, Lack of Love, Lack of Faith, and Lack of Joy. And he said to me, I'm really going to give it to them at this conference that he was going to. And I remember remember feeling at the time, I was only about 22 at the time, I remember thinking, he really enjoys laying in to God's people. And eventually he went, had a church, he had a church. When he went, it was packed, and when he left, it was empty. And I, I think really he bludgeoned those dear people till they were they were really so miserable. They had to go somewhere to find some joy in their, in their Christian life. I hope we don't do that to you here. But you know, there is a certain kind of Christian preaching that delights to expose error or sin, that delights to judge failure. And sometimes it, <clears throat> there are preachers who have made it the chief end of preaching to make the Christian life appear as miserable uh, as they are. Let's put it like that. Well, but you know, and and it's true to say, I think, that many failures that we have in our lives are more apparent or imagined than they are real. I think we make things up to make us feel more miserable very often in Christian circles. We're not talking about sin. We all know that we sin, but there are these other things that aren't quite sin that are made so much of that really becomes impossible to live the Christian life and keep those things. It's it just we become miserable. But there are other things. There are other failures that are real, things that lurk in our conscious or subconscious mind that we know. We know that we have failed in one way or another in our lives. And Simon Peter's failure is really quite clear it is quite remarkable. When Simon Peter failed, he did it the way he did everything in his life. He did it publicly, he did it with noisily, and he did it spectacularly. And we read the story, John has recorded the story <clears throat> very clearly about Peter's failure to uh, stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ, because this is the man This is the man who had said over and over again, though everybody else does this, I won't do that. 
I won't do that. And yet, John's gospel has recorded how that when Jesus was arrested and was taken away to trial, that Peter and John and perhaps one or two others had followed from a distance and had tried to keep themselves incognito and but keep an eye on what was going on. And Peter was there as Jesus was taken into the, into the court of the high priest. And Peter was standing, warming himself by the fire in a cold Palestinian evening, by the fire. And the young servant girl asked him, did I not see you with the Galilean? And he kind of swears and says, no way, Jose. And again, another time, she comes back to him and she says, I'm quite sure that I saw you with the Galilean. And he said, absolutely not. You're, you're wrong, mistaken identity. And she comes again later on, and she says to him, I'm absolutely certain I saw you with the crowd who were there with the Galilean. And he swears till the air's turning quite blue. I did not know the man. I do not know the man. Jesus has said it would happen. Jesus said before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And there it was. John had been in the background. He'd heard the whole thing. John was there. He'd heard what Peter had said. Peter never, never questioned it, never, never doubted it, never tried to bury it. It was there. It was known. It was known by everybody in the apostolic band. And by the time Jesus is alive again and he's meeting with them, there is this one big elephant in the room, Peter's failure. And there's no doubt that Peter's failure is on the same level as Judas Iscariot's favor, uh, failure. Judas Iscariot, you remember, betrayed the Lord Jesus. Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times. Peter's denial and Judas's betrayal are of equal value in terms of their seriousness. But Judas Iscariot was not a believer. Judas Iscariot did not really love the Savior. Judas Iscariot had no heart for the Savior. Judas Iscariot was not one of God's elect, and he was not one of God's, of his own choice. He was not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter, Peter was a believer, and he had failed spectacularly. So, this unresolved issue then is on the mind of all of the disciples, I'm sure, and it's weighing on Peter, and it is on the Lord's mind as well. That's where we lead into the story that we read this evening. They'd finished breakfast. Jesus and Peter have perhaps gone off on a walk on their own, followed by John, who's just keeping an eye on things, because he knows he's going to write this gospel and he wants to make, have notes. Or, or some reason or other, John's always in the background whenever Jesus is with Peter. And so, Jesus and Peter begin to speak. And you know the story. We've read it. I'm sure you've read it many, many times yourself. There are three questions, there are three commissions, and there are three affirmations. There are three questions. Jesus three times asks Peter the question. And he begins by talking to Peter in a way that he hasn't talked to Peter for three years. Because right at the very beginning of their relationship, when he met Simon, the son of John, 
he called him Simon, son of John, and then gave him a new name. That new name was Peter. Your name is Simon. I'm going to call you Peter because on this rock I'm going to build the church. As a believing, confessing disciple, I'm going to build the church. Uh, in first, uh, John records that in John chapter 1, verse 42, you are Simon, son of John, and you shall be called Kephas, or Peter, a stone, a rock. But here you notice, in each one of these questions, Jesus does not use the name Peter. If you like, Peter is his apostolic name. Peter is his believing name. But Jesus comes to him, and he, he begins at the very beginning. It's as if He's taking Peter right back to the very beginning of their relationship, to the very first time they had ever encountered one another. Simon, son of John. What's He doing? He is recommencing the relationship with Peter that is broken down as a result of Peter's failure and sin. He's taking him right back to the beginning. Because you see, what happens when we sin, however we sin, is that we spoil fellowship. We spoil relationship. Our Christian life is not simply a matter of ticking the boxes of things that we ought to do or not do. It is a relationship fundamentally with the Lord Jesus. And when we sin against the Lord Jesus, we sin against a friend. We sin against our older brother. We sin against the one who has loved our souls to death and has redeemed us. And when we sin, we break that relationship. It harms our relationship. That's what Jesus taught Peter in the upper room when He was washing their feet, and Peter said, Lord, don't do this to me. Jesus says to him, Peter, if you don't let me serve you with my salvation, if you don't let me wash you, then we have no fellowship. There is no fellowship with, between us. Peter had been told that. Now he learns it in action. He had gone out from there after learning that lesson from Jesus and forgot it altogether, had gone on and sinned, and now Jesus is meeting him at the point of his need. Now his feet are really dirty. You remember that picture back in chapter 13? We spent a lot of time in that. We've gone back to it again and again. It's so important, that picture. Jesus gets up from his place puts on the badge of the servant, gets down on his knees and washes the feet of the disciples and has that encounter with Simon Peter. And he taught Peter there, when your feet are dirty, when you have fallen, when you have sinned, when in the course of your life you fall as a believer, you need, you need to come again and again and receive from Jesus the cleansing that only the Lord Jesus can give. Let me remind you of what Jesus taught them that back then. This is what He told them there in John 13. You need to know John 13 to understand what's going on here and why this is happening to Peter but not to Judas. Jesus had begun to wash their feet. He'd come to Peter. Peter said, no way, Lord. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says to him, uh, if I don't wash you, you have no fellowship with me. <clears throat> Peter, in his enthusiasm, says, well, if that's what it takes to fellowship with you, then hose me down, Lord. You know, 
throw the whole bottle of water over me, and I'll be, you know, everything. Just kind of do the whole thing. I want the whole deal. I want everything that you have to give. And Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you know, sit down, calm yourself, <clears throat> collect yourself, and, and realize this, that you've already had a bath, Peter. All you need is your feet washed. That's all. That's why I'm washing your feet. And he goes on to teach him that he's not just talking about washing feet or having baths. <clears throat> he's talking about something spiritual because he says this, you're all clean already, though not every one of you. Not every one of you, referring to, to Judas Iscariot. And we looked when we were studying that, we looked at elsewhere in the Bible where the language that's used there is found, and we discovered that the language that's used there is found, for example, in Titus, where the word for the bath is the word for the washing of the new birth. You're all born again, Peter, except one of you. And if you're born again, you don't have to be born again again. But when you get dirty, when your feet get dirty, when you fall, when you stumble, when you get into the world, as it were, and collect sin up in the course of your life, you don't need to be born again, again, but you do need restored to fellowship with me. And that involves me washing you. That involves me cleansing you. <clears throat> and you're receiving, <clears throat> excuse me, you're receiving the cleansing. So that's what's happening here. He, Jesus brings them back to the very beginning of their relationship. You are Simon, son of John. Do you love me? That's his question. Do you love me more than these? Now, it's become common in some circles to make very much of the words that are used in this story in the Greek. Uh, there are two different words that are used here, agapeo and phileo. Agape meaning love, phileo meaning love, agape one form of love. Sometimes it's said to be the divine form of love, but actually if you look at the Gospels generally, you'll find that both agape and phileo uh, are used interchangeably, and they're used all over the place, and they're used without any rhyme, reason, or, or whatever in order to say that love relationship is involved in our relationship with God. But sometimes people make a big distinction, and they build whole, build whole sermons on the different uses of the word phileo and agape in this text. I'm not going to do that. I think enough work has been done now by the scholars to demonstrate that throughout the Gospels, these two words are used interchangeably without any real uh, intention or theological difference between them. And anyway, the conversation was held in Aramaic, and there ain't a variety of words in Aramaic for them to use. So that kind of settles the whole deal right there. So, sorry, that's a whole fancy bit of interpretation you're not going to get from me this evening. He's simply asking Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? You can use any word you like, Peter. Agape, phileo, whatever word you want to use, but do you love me? And do you notice he, in the first question, he says, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than they love me? You know, it had been one of Peter's great boasts that he loved the Lord Jesus. 
He's the one who said to Jesus back in chapter 13, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. If you're going to die, I want to die with you by your side. Luke records, or Mark records rather, Peter on one occasion said to him, Lord, even though they all fall away, I will not. And his bombast and his boast that he would not fall away, that he would die with Jesus, has been blown out of the water. It's been demonstrated that his bombast and his boast were hollow and empty, and that in spite of his great intentions, when it came down to it, when he's put on the spot, when he is waterboarded by a servant girl standing by the fire. No, he's not waterboarded at all. She's only asking him a question. Were you one of them? Did I see you among them? What does he do? He denies the Lord three times with oaths and curses. I did not know the man. So, as Jesus asks him the question three times, do you love me? He's highlighting the fact that loving Jesus has greater implications than simply the way we feel about Jesus. The way we feel about Jesus may be real, but does it work its way out beyond how we feel about Him? It may involve greater sacrifices and require more considered thought than Peter had given it or that you and I had given. Well, there's a triple question, and there's a triple affirmation. Three times, Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then feeling quite upset that Jesus had asked him three times, once for each of his failures, he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now, it's interesting how Peter addresses the Lord Jesus here. One of some of the things that that are said here about the Lord Jesus are very important. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Later on, he says, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now, he gives his answer clearly and quickly. He's not saying to Jesus, why ever would you ask me that? He knows that Jesus knows him better than he knows himself. He knows that Jesus knows what's happened in his his denial. He knows that Jesus is familiar with his actions and that his words, therefore, were no reassurance about what what, what he was up to and what he was thinking. He doesn't justify himself. His words and actions mock and condemn him. But when he says, you know that I love you, he is not saying to Jesus, you know from my record that I love you. No, he is reaching out to Jesus' deeper teaching. Jesus has said, I know my own and my own know me. One thing you had to say about Peter is that he knew who Jesus was. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
I know my own, and my own know me. He has said later on in John's gospel, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And again he had said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. When Jesus, when Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you know that I love you, he is, he is reaching into Christ's eternal knowledge of His people, the people He had known from before the foundation of the world. He is reaching into the electing choice of the Son of God in eternity of His people. And He's saying to Him, you know that I'm among those that you have chosen, whom you have loved, and who in turn love you, because you first loved me. My love is not anything self-generated. It is something that you have created and placed in my heart. You know that I love you. You know everything. You know everything because you are the Lord, God of Israel. You know everything about me, and you know me because you have known me. And because you know me, you know that actually I have no choice. I love you. I'm one of yours, one of those who love you because you first loved me. And that appeal that he's making is to the unchanging knowledge and, and the unchanging choice and the unchanging love of the Savior towards him. You know when it says in John 13 that Jesus loved his own who were in the world, and He loved them to the very end. This is demonstrating He loved them to the very end. Even when they fail, He doesn't give up on them. Even when they fall, He doesn't give up on them and walk away from them. He loves His own to the end. You may be here this evening. You may be listening to this by webcast, and there is some massive failure in your life, and yet you're still here, and you're still listening, and you're still following, even if you're following afar off. You have to ask yourself, why are you still following? And why does it matter to you that although you've failed, and although you've fallen, and although you've sinned, and maybe massively sinned, maybe disgraced yourself and disgraced your family, maybe maybe made a shipwreck of your life. Nonetheless, nonetheless, you're here because it still matters to you that you know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does it matter to you? Well, it matters to you because you know Him. You know Him. And even your sin and your failure and your rebellion, you cannot get away from Him. And He keeps drawing you back to Himself. He's drawing you aside as He takes Peter aside at this after this breakfast event, and speaks to him. He's taking you aside, and by his word this evening, he is speaking to you, and he's saying to you, do you love me? Do you love me? And you have to respond to him. Well, you know all things. You know that no matter what I've done, no matter how bad I've been, I can't get away from you, Lord, you know. At whatever level it's possible for me to do this, you know. You know that I love you. Those affirmations of Peter remind us. In the words of an old hymn, My love is sometimes low, my joy still ebbs and flows. 
But peace with Him remains the same. No change my Savior knows. I change. He changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. Three affirmations followed by three commissions. In the book of Luke, there's a a report of Jesus' prophecy of Peter's denial. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day till you deny me three times that you know me. Now, the key words there are the words, when you've turned, strengthen your brothers. So, in response to Peter's threefold pledge of love to Jesus, there is a threefold commission by Jesus. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, whatever differences we may see, and there are between sheep and lambs, and between the tending and the feeding, the words point us to the task of a shepherd, and they suggest to us the total care of the flock of God. So, in this commission, we hear Jesus publicly affirm before the other apostles His confidence that Peter is, like them, a shepherd of the flock of God, His church. Shepherding or pastoring is one of the most frequent images we find for the work of leading and caring for the church of God. It finds its origins in God. God is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In Ezekiel chapter 34, we we hear of the Lord's own critique of the spiritual leaders of Israel. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord, ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? That was God's criticism of the leaders of that day, the days of Ezekiel. They were false leaders, irresponsible shepherds. They were fleecing the sheep, not feeding the sheep. They were using the sheep to their own advantage, to build their own little empire, to build their own little kingdom, to build their reputation, to build their influence, to line their pockets. They were were using the sheep. We have false shepherds like that in the church today, don't we? The church has always had false shepherds like that, who use the people of God to their own ends and advantage. These false shepherds that are talked about in Ezekiel were failing to care for those in charge. God goes on to say this in Ezekiel 34, the weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought and with force and harshness, you've ruled them. You've bullied them. Now, there's a challenge here to every pastor here, a challenge to every elder here, a challenge to me here. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought. 
Instead, what have you done? You've bullied them. You've been harsh to them. You've forced them. You've, you've pushed them around. You've got them to do what you want rather than you serve them. It goes to the very heart of what it means to be a shepherd. And the result in Ezekiel 34 is this. They were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. We don't care for the flock of God. We don't care for the people of God. Brothers and sisters, we don't care for one another. But if the shepherds are not caring for you, there is something fundamentally wrong within the church of God. And in John's gospel, Jesus comes as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When I was coming before the denominational board as a 17-year-old to get accredited as a a potential candidate for the Christian ministry, I was interviewed by about 70 men in this council. It was the Council of the Baptist Union of Scotland. And they were all men in gray suits, and they looked ridiculously serious. And and I came in, and uh, they asked me a number of questions. They were theological questions. And somebody that I very much respected and knew sitting in the front row said, Liam, do you love the people of God? I think of all of the questions I was asked that day, that one has never left my mind. Do I love the people of God? The day I wake up and think I haven't is the day that I give up. Jesus calls the shepherds to love the people of God. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Our Lord Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. Peter says later himself in 1 Peter chapter 5, one of his letters, he says that the Lord Jesus is the chief shepherd to whom all the under shepherds are answerable. The flock is His flock. It's the flock of God that was purchased by His blood. He is the chief shepherd, not Peter, by the way. He, Jesus, is the King and head of the church and the one to whom all the other shepherds answer. And it follows, therefore, that what Jesus has in view here is ministry generally, not just the apostolic ministry. He's already dealt with that earlier on when He breathed on the apostles, the Holy Spirit, so that they would be the instruments of the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, would lead them into all truth, so that they could be the, testament, the testifiers to the reality of what God had done in Christ. But here, it seems much more specific to the ministry in general. According to Ephesians 4, Church leaders are set apart for three things. One, equipping the saints. Two, the work of the ministry. And three, building up the body of Christ. How do they do that? Well, they do that by loving and caring for the flock, but they do it in this way as well, that uh, when Paul says to the Philippian, or the Ephesian, rather, elders, he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, To care, the word care there is the Greek word shepherd, to shepherd the church of God which He has obtained with His own blood. And how do we do that? Well, ultimately, we feed them. We care for them. Feeding them is part of the caring for them. 
And Paul gives an insight into what that involves. <clears throat> Again in Acts 20, when he's talking to these Ephesian elders, he says this, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. Why? Because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, everything that God has to say, I've not held back anything that would be profitable to you. I haven't fudged the bits that I don't like. I've not held back anything that was profitable to you, Paul says. And here he says to Peter, feed my lambs, the little ones, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, care for the church of God. What a great responsibility lay on Peter to do that very thing. So this was meant to be the last sermon on John. I don't think we're going to do the last bit just now, tonight. I think we're just going to stop there. But I want you to follow with me just for a moment as we get to the conclusion here. After these three questions, three commissions, and three affirmations, I want you to notice that Jesus then goes on to say something quite personal to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And you know how Peter was crucified. I've stood there on Vatican Hill, where St. Peter's is today, used to be Nero's Circus. And on Nero's Circus, not only were there games held and battles fought and gladiators, but there were from time to time games held in which the Christians were used, tied to stakes around the great amphitheater and burned to illuminate the evening games. And it was in that amphitheater, that circus, where St. Peter's still now stands, that Peter was crucified. He asked them to crucify him upside down because he did not want to die in the same way Jesus did. He said, I'm not worthy to die that way. And he died crucified. I want you to notice what Jesus says to him. He's taken him right back to the very beginning of their relationship, and he starts, brings him right back to the initial words that he'd said to Peter. Follow me. He always does this. He brings us back to this. This is what it is. This is what it means to be a Christian. So you failed, and you've come tonight to the Word of God, and the Lord Jesus has come to you through this Word, and He said to you, so you failed. How many times have you failed? Three times? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Seventy times. I'm not going to say it seventy times. But Jesus would. He loves his own to the end. He knows his own. Judas hangs himself. Peter gets a personal relationship restored. And after dealing with the sin, 
And after restoring him to fellowship, he comes back to this. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me into the workplace tomorrow. Follow me back home tonight. Discipleship means following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that tonight you would help us to bring our failures to you. Grateful that this lesson this evening is that failure is not final for those who follow Jesus. Thank you for his grace in dealing with us kindly, for his restoring grace, and that he pleads for us. He pleads for us and prays for us and intercedes for us in heaven in his exalted state. He is our great high priest. Whoever lives to make intercession for us as we are in the battle here. We pray that you would help us to live the kind of life that that comes back out into the open, as it were, that lets him cleanse us and wash us when our feet are dirty from the sins and, and stuff that has accumulated during the day. And in doing that, keep our fellowship with him fresh and new. We pray in his name. Amen.